Genesis 2, 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the garden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Walt. Grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. God, we want to understand your creation, and we want to understand ourselves in the way that you have created us, and we pray that you would help us tonight uh, as we look at this text, and as we um, seek to understand important things um, about ourselves. And we pray that you would work that in us by your Spirit, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Okay, a couple of quick notes before we get started. We try to get y'all out of here by eight normally. Uh, I think we're going to go a little bit over tonight. So if you have to leave for any reason, that's totally fine. Don't worry about it. Um, second thing, um, a lot of good stuff in the sermon is from my friend and former boss, uh, Les Newsom, who's the RUF campus minister at Ole Miss for many years. So uh, all the good stuff that you hear, give him credit for that. All the bad stuff, that's my fault. Okay, let's get started. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but a big part of being a human being, big part of being an adult in particular, is acting like you understand stuff that you do not understand. Okay, I'm an expert at this. And I don't just mean like people talk about crypto, nobody really understands crypto. I mean much more basic things. Um, like I, I never know what a car mechanic is saying to me. I'm just like, yeah, I, yeah, man, like let's get those filters right, you know? Uh, or it's, we're coming up into tax season. I do my taxes every year. Do I know how taxes work? No, I don't. I should, I should be clear. I have a CPA to do my taxes every year, so I don't have to know. How to do them. Or uh, this is maybe the best example. I'm a, a two-time and current homeowner, and yet I still really don't know how to buy a house. And I've done it twice. There's a lot of paperwork involved, I can tell you. But um, I also think that as, as Christians, if Christians are honest with themselves, then uh, even ones that have grown up in the church, and that may be you, then the list of stuff you don't really understand, but you kind of feel like you're supposed to understand, just grows exponentially. And we're going to spend some time tonight talking about two things that are on, I think, the Mount Rushmore of like kind of confusing Christian stuff. And those two things are the Trinity on the one hand, and on the other, the concept of covenant. And so uh, we've talked a number of times about how uh, almost all of the major Christian doctrines are contained in seed form in Genesis. And we're going to get a lot of that tonight. And we're also uh, going to hear a lot of quotes tonight because it's very important that we define things like the Trinity and, and covenants uh, very carefully. So but, but before we get there, I want to say just briefly, um, sometimes people act like, Anything remotely related to God is just by definition unknowable. Like you just can't know. And those folks are generally called agnostics. That word comes from a Greek word for unknown. And they're basically saying, yeah, like, you know, maybe some of that stuff is true, but we can't really know. It's impossible to know. And according to my offhand internet research, which you should definitely trust, um, that's actually a big group in your age range. That's 39% of 18 to 29-year-olds who claim to be agnostic. Uh, But I would argue agnostics are actually saying that they know something very significant about God. And that is that he has not revealed himself. That he has not revealed himself. And that's the difference, really. Christians are saying that, that not that we know everything there is to know about God and there's no mystery involved and we just have it. We're saying that we know that he uh, what he has chosen to reveal about himself. And one of the things that God has chosen to reveal is that he exists as one God in three persons. The three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit 
is God. Yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, etc. There are not three gods. There is one God in three persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, why is this doctrine so important? Because, Augustine put it this way, he said the Trinity is the only view of God that gives an understanding of the ultimate that has relationship at the heart of it. In other words, only the Christian understanding of of God contains relationship at the heart of reality and, and at the heart of our human experience. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist in perfect, eternal communion, a perfect relationship with each other. And then they invite, in, uh, invite us into that relationship by faith in Jesus Christ. And so as people made in the image of God, we too are, are created for relationship. We're created for community. In fact, in verse 18 is the first Uh, It's called a malediction that we see. This is the opposite of a benediction, the opposite of a good word. So the first one we see in Scripture, a malediction. Up until now, everything has been good or very good in creation. But in verse 18, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. And that actually leads us to our, our second key concept here, and that is covenant. So a covenant, as defined by Ligon Duncan is a a way or means to secure a mutual relationship of blessing and obligations. So it's it's something like a a contract, an agreement, a testament, think last will and testament, but it's for living persons. In other words, covenants are at the heart of the Bible because relationship is, is rooted in the Trinity and it's at the heart of humanity. Or another way to say it is that we do not exist before God or with each other, for that matter, without particular lanes of relating to one another. And these lanes are created by God and called covenants. One very important one that we get here in this text is marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship created and defined by God between a man and a woman. And we'll talk more about it later. So. Three points that we're going to use to unfold these tonight. I think they're in your handout. Covenant concepts, covenant blessings, and covenant marriage. So let's uh, look at the first of these. Covenant concept. Various places in the Bible we see God use a simple sentence, a, a sort of turn of phrase, to emphasize something very profound. Jeremiah 30, 22, for example, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's an interesting I I will be your God and you will be my people. What does he mean by that? Well, that is a covenant statement. That's what God is saying there. And a professor of mine, Bob Kara, used to say, he'd say theology is done at the concept level, not the word level. In other words, to understand covenants or the Trinity or any other kind of high level doctrine for that matter, we have to be on the lookout for the concept, even if the word is not used. And in Genesis 2, the word covenant is not used But all of this is covenant stuff. It's sort of like a duck that doesn't call itself a duck. This looks like a covenant. It walks like a covenant. It talks like a covenant. How do we know there are three elements of a covenant and they are here? First, there's a defining of the relationship. Second, of what is required of the parties of a covenant. And third, there are blessings and curses associated with it. So we actually have this in just modern day normal contracts, right? They stipulate good things that will happen if you keep 
the agreement, they threaten the bad things that will happen if you do not. Why is this important? I think that this is actually incredibly freeing and incredibly encouraging that uh, to learn that we are not just piecing together relationships, just sort of willy nilly, helter skelter, that, that God has actually defined how he wants you to relate to him. He has defined how husbands and wives should relate and parents and children and, and people inside the church. There's thinking about using an illustration from earlier. I'm not going to do that for uh, parents and children. We're just going to we're just going to keep it moving here. OK, um, I, I think we kind of know this intuitively um, that it is good to define things. And we long to know what is going on in a relationship. Right. Uh, I'm a campus minister. I know I had one of these conversations earlier today. You know who you are. Some of the most maddening times of your life are when you are in an undefined relationship, right? It's like, he took me out, but he didn't call it a day. I don't know what he's thinking. Or, you know, she texts me all the time. Actually, she likes me, but I don't know if she doesn't. It's just kind of muddling the unknown, the shading of one kind of relationship into another kind of relationship that causes problems. I had to tell one of my children, for instance, this past Saturday, he may be on the piano out there. I had to say, look, I am not your buddy. You cannot talk to me like you talk to your buddies on the playground. That's not our relationship. That's not our lane, right? And so um, relational lanes are helpful and never more so than in our relationship with God. And so here's what's going on in Genesis 2. In verses 15 to 17 in particular, God is instituting a covenant with Adam. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, this is traditionally called by theologians the, the covenant of works. And then after the fall and unfolding throughout Scripture is the second major covenant, the covenant of grace. That does not mean that this, the covenant of works, doesn't have any grace in it. But it does mean that it was up to Adam to obey upon penalty of death. And so here we see this this covenant concept, which leads us to our second point, covenant blessings. Here's what a theologian named R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, to understand the covenant of works, we must consider Adam's state in the Garden of Eden before the fall. God created Adam good and in the proper relationship with him. He was not as good as he could be, however. By obeying the command to not eat the forbidden fruit, Adam could have reflected God's glory more fully and would have merited eternal life for himself and his descendants. In other words, in this situation... Adam is not in the covenant of works acting only for himself. He is humankind's representative before God. And that's what makes the fall so significant. Um, Adam has been given, think about this, this this huge, this beautiful garden, like nothing that we have ever seen, supplying his every need in just one tree is off limits. And in this, Adam had a choice. He could be a covenant keeper or he could be a covenant breaker. And we will uh, get to more of his choice next week. But I think you know probably how the story goes. And yet, before we get there, I want you to take a moment to just appreciate um, this time in the biblical story. 
It's really, it's, it's unlike anything that we have ever known on, on this side of heaven. And really, if we can skip to the end for a moment, it's summarized in uh, verse 25, you heard it earlier. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. So when I was in college, there was a, a writer named Donald Miller who had written like the, the It Christian book um, at that time that like everybody was talking about. And um, I'm not necessarily commending the book to you, but Donald Miller came to my college and he did a talk. And I remember him uh, talking about this particular moment in, in the biblical story. And he, he talked about how unbelievable it was that Adam and Eve were naked and, and without shame. And he's like, as I remember him saying it, he's like, for me, I am hyper aware anytime I am naked. I'm never going to forget that. There's no chance. And so the important thing here is not that Adam and Eve were without clothes. It's that Adam and Eve were without shame. They were without shame. Can you imagine what a shameless existence would be like. Shame, we've talked about, is, is this feeling that at, at root, at bottom, something is wrong with you. Brene Brown says, shame is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's a crushing feeling, and we all know how it feels. So we can get into another time some of the nuances of those feelings. Of course, the Bible does say there is something wrong with us, uh, according to the next chapter uh, next week. But in this moment, before sin entered the world and death through sin, Adam and Eve are without shame. They're holy and, and, and completely, or we might say holistically, every single one of their needs is fulfilled in this moment. And that tells us something very profound about who God is. It tells us that he is a God who delights in doing good for his people, for his children, who delights in meeting their needs and in, in covering us with his love. The Bible talks about this all the time, many different ways. Uh, take one example, Psalm 91.4. Listen to the tenderness of God. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Lots of places in the Bible. So it's almost like God is, is um, showing a, a sort of mothering side of him, this tender side. And it's, it's the type of love that only exists or did in eternity past in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God created you to enjoy that love and to worship him in the midst of it. That is at the very bottom of the creation story. And so as a stamp of this great love, God gave one of his greatest gifts in the second half of this passage. That's our third point here, uh, the covenant of marriage. So we'll start in um, verse 20. Is that my son on the piano? I don't know. Hard to say. At least I know where he is, right? Uh, verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and, and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we've already said the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So all the creatures of the earth have been paraded before Adam, right? He had seen all of them, but none of them could offer the relational fulfillment that God intended. And so God created, verse 20, a helper, it says, fit for him. Lest you think that helper is some sort of pejorative term, like a servant or, you know, somehow lesser. The Bible calls God himself a helper a number of times, calls him the helper of Israel. And so it's better to see the creation of of woman as a, a crowning moment in God's creation. And that is exactly why we see in verse 23, the very first words of poetry that are uttered by a human being. And Adam says, you can see it's printed differently, right? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's something unique that's happening there. And very appropriate for Valentine's Day, right? Um, so it's, a, it's the creation of one of God's greatest covenant institutions of marriage. And the threat of this institution is going to continue from the Old Testament on into the new and actually forever past this. Um, but it's, it's going to continue in Scripture until we get to Jesus. And in him, we can tie together all of these threads of Trinity and covenant, covenant of works and marriage. They all get tied together in Jesus in this way. Adam, we'll talk about in depth next week, falls, right? He, he does not keep the covenant. And so the threat, you shall surely die. That threat becomes reality. It's why death exists. And Adam, in his disobedience, he's acting as a representative for all humankind. And therefore, his disobedience curses us all. As our covenant representative, when Adam falls, we fall with him. And this is the doctrine of original sin, the sin that we are born into as heirs of Adam, the sin that commends, uh, uh, condemns us to death and results in all of the actual sins that we commit. But God does not leave us there. But what does he do? He's made the covenant. He cannot abrogate uh, or repeal, do away with the covenant of works. But we cannot fulfill it. So what does he do? He sends Jesus to act as a new and better and perfect covenant representative. Old theologians have called his covenant federal or his our federal head. And so from Romans 5, um, 18 and 19. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, talking about Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, comes to keep the covenant of works for us and to take the punishment of our breaking of the covenant on himself at the cross. And so though we continue to enjoy uh, the fruits of earthly marriages, in Jesus, God actually creates a, a new type of marriage, one that cannot be broken by time or unfaithfulness or sickness or de even death itself. The marriage this is from Ephesians 5 of Christ and his church. 
Okay, that's a lot. There's a lot here. Um, We're going to have to wrap up. I wish I could spend a lot more time on this. You might not, but I wish I could. Uh, So how do we apply this? How do we apply it? Um, Three quick things here. The first is that God has revealed himself. He is not an unknown quantity. We can know what he has chosen to reveal him uh, about himself. So take up his word. Read the Bible and know God. It's the first thing. Second thing, the, the covenant of works actually remains. It is still out there. It still exists and you are in it right now. And you are either in covenant with God, uh, well, you are in covenant with God, whether you realize it or not, but you are either, um, let me rephrase this. You have right now either Adam as your covenant representative leading to death, or you have Jesus as your covenant head leading to life, eternal life. That's what the Bible says. And so uh, lastly, third and finally, it's Valentine's Day. Um, the, The picture of marriage instituted by God, one man and one woman in covenant is good. It is so good, I promise you. But even better is the heavenly marriage in the gospel of Christ and his church. And if you believe, if you're in Christ, then you are in that. You are the bride and Jesus is the groom. And that's what it says in Ephesians 5. We'll close with this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, let me pray for us.